Coming up, an interview with author Parker Palmer on the crisis of belonging and how churches can be part of the solution. After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dan Hummel, uh, on staff here at Upper House, and excited to bring you another great episode of the podcast. Today, we're excited to bring you a conversation intended for church leaders that was hosted a few weeks back virtually here at Upper House. And that conversation was with noted author Parker Palmer. The reason we partnered with Parker Palmer and the larger set of partnerships that made the event possible are what we're going to talk about here in the intro, and we'll give you just a window into some of the work we do here at Upper House that is less visible to the public, but just as important. So with me to introduce Parker and this conversation is Executive Director of Upper House, John Terrell. Hi, John. Hi, Dan. Good to see you. Yeah. So tell us a bit about Parker Palmer. Well, Parker is a writer, a speaker, and an activist who focuses on issues in education, community, leadership, spirituality, and social change. He's Founder and senior partner emeritus of the Center for Courage and Renewal, which offers long-term retreat programs for people in the serving professions. He's a prolific author. I think he's authored 10 books, several award-winning titles. Um, His books have sold nearly 2 million copies and have been translated into 10 languages. Um, He's just got a distinguished academic career. He has a PhD in sociology from UC Berkeley and all kinds of awards. Um, But one of the things that I think is so interesting about him is he's a Madisonian. Um, He is this world-renowned author, lecturer, educator, and he lives right here in Madison with his wife, Sharon. Um, He's a member of the Religious Society of Friends, or he's a Quaker, and um, has just been a really integral part of our community as well. Yeah, so a really familiar name to, uh, should be a familiar name to a lot of people uh, listening to this podcast. So we hosted Parker as part of a grant that Upper House is a partner on called Awaken Dane, funded by the Lilly Endowment. So John, tell us a bit about Awaken Dane and the, our partners. Would be glad to. Awaken Dane is a five-year Lilly Endowment funded project um, to catalyze um, a movement of churches uh, to do three things. Um, one is to awaken uh, these churches to God's call, particularly in their, in their local communities. Two, to form life-giving friendships and partnerships. And then three, to grow in love and understanding of the place where we abide. I think it's easy to get caught up in issues that are just big issues, and we forget about the strengths and challenges in our own zip codes, um, in our own neighborhoods. And so this is a this is a grant to help churches wrestle with issues that are really close to home and to discern issues, how God might be leading in their particular neighborhoods. We, it's a partnership with four local ministries. The lead uh, ministry is the Wisconsin Council of Churches. Um, the Collaboration Project is also a partner. The University of Dubuque Theological Seminary and then Upper House is the, the fourth partner on this project tell you a little bit more about this. The way it works is um, we have a cohort of pastors that meets every year, up to 10 churches, and so they're part of this large cohort. Um, a little bit of this has been redesigned since COVID, so we pl- originally planned on two cohorts of 20 churches, and now we're going to have four cohorts of 10 churches. And these pastors um, gather together. They also um, gather in neighborhood church clusters and also within their congregational teams for deeper learning and discernment. And we actually go through a guided curriculum that's designed by the Missional Network, which is um, based in Canada, uh, but they work with lots of U.S. and North American churches, including U.S. churches. And the Missional Network really uh, supports and resources church leaders as they find unique, really place place-informed strategies um, for understanding and responding to God's mission uh, in the world. And so, again, it's very place-oriented. 
is kind of their their philosophy. Several times over the course of the life of this five five year grant, actually eight times, we meet in these large plenary sessions. And so Parker represented um, the first of these eight sessions, um, and he spoke on the theme of belonging. And then as the years progress here in this grant, we will tackle um, race is our next uh, conversation in the plenary format. We will then talk about the built environment. We'll then turn our attention to primary and secondary education, then city movements, politics, higher education, and finally the workplace. So you can see how these themes are issues that transcend our particular neighborhoods and are important to churches across Dane County. Yeah, and there are certainly things that we talk a lot about here at Upper House and a lot of our programming as well. And just as, as you were talking, uh, reflecting on the importance of place for our ministry here located at the University of Wisconsin seems like a good fit uh, for us um, working on this project. Very much so. Yeah, so um, so getting to the talk that that we're about to listen to uh, with Parker, tell us a bit about that theme of belonging, and then um, also the his his conversation partners. Sure. Well, I trying to find a way to start, and um, you know, you could start. I, I named the themes, and they're all big ideas and important themes that really do influence our life on a day to day basis. But maybe belonging, um, at least in our view, was a good place to. S- to start, you know, the United States broadly and our churches more particularly are encountering um, in many ways a crisis of belonging. We've lost a sense of shared identity. Um, we've lost trust in many of our institutions. We find ourselves joining groups that largely define themselves by what they stand against rather than what they're for. And more troubling um, is that many of our churches now situate themselves within this continuum of polarization. So there's a church for um, this, there's a church for that, and we have in some ways kind of self-identified. And I think, and we think, um, pastors are exhausted. We know that. We hear it all the time, and so are congregational members. So we we wanted to start with um, longing for um some solutions, or at least some conversation about how we might break through some of this sense of alienation and loneliness and isolation. You know, I think about Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17 and um, calling for unity in the body of Christ. And um, it really does feel like 2,000 years ago. It feels like a long way away, right? And so I think we need to... um, regain some of that sense of trust in each other, in one another, the sense of belonging um, to Jesus, to one another in the body of Christ, and to our neighborhoods, which is really the vision for Awakened Dane. And I think if we can do that, we can begin to heal and repair some of our wounds. And so that's why we started with the topic of belonging and why we thought it was a, a good way to launch these plenary sessions. Yeah, excellent. And tell us just a bit about uh, Phil and Becca, who are the ones interviewing Parker. Many will recognize Phil's voice, um, probably. Phil uh, Hesslinger has spent 34, maybe maybe 35, I think it's about 34 years as a journalist he, at the Capital Times. Um, and last year he was inducted uh, into the Wisconsin Newspaper Hall of Fame. He has not been at the Times for quite a while. He spent the last 10 years um, pastoring at Memorial United Church of Christ and just recently retired, maybe a year or so ago. He serves on the boards of Just Dane and the Center for Journalism Ethics here at U- University of Wisconsin-Madison. And then Becca Cooks is a part of the Upper House team. She's a UW-Madison alumna and Chancellor Scholar. Um, she spent the last five years working in vocational ministry in Madison, first at High Point Church and currently here at Upper House. And um, at Upper House, she manages programming hospitality. She directs our internship program and she teaches in our fellows program. So they're delightful conversation partners with Parker and um, brought a lot to the conversation. Great. Thanks, John. As you were talking, I just, uh, you were talking about the feelings of exhaustion, alienation, polarization that certainly church leaders are feeling. I'm betting many people listening to this uh, that aren't church leaders also feel those same tugs uh, and pulls in their communities as well. And I don't think there's any better voice than than the voice of Parker Palmer to help us. I think the uh, I think those who listen are going to find refreshment in what he offers today. Excellent. Well, just a note that Awakened Dane is actually recruiting more pastors and church leaders into its cohorts, and they'd be eager to hear from you if you fit that description. 
and are interested. And there's contact information, an email that's in the show notes uh, if you're interested. So as we begin this conversation, the first voice you'll hear is Phil's and the second is Parker's. And Becca has quite a different sounding voice and she'll be coming in a couple minutes later. So without further ado, here's an upwards conversation with Parker Palmer. Yeah, I'd like to maybe start out just talking a little bit about in your own life, places where you have found belonging, maybe starting out, you know, in, in the years when you were young, you were part of a um, mainstream congregation. Um, were there places there where you found a sense of belonging? Yeah, back when woolly mammoths roamed the earth, that kind of thing. So, yeah, take a little trip. Absolutely. I grew up in a suburb of Chicago. Uh, my parents were much involved in a Methodist church in Wilmette, Illinois, and so I was involved with that too, as as were my two sisters. And um, I, I learned some very, very important lessons at uh, Wilmette Methodist Church, as it was then called. Um, I have to say that the adult services didn't speak that profoundly to me, but uh, the church was blessed with a really engaging youth minister who never wanted anything more than to be the best youth minister minister possible. And uh, the youth group that gathered there, the high school group, especially in my memory, um, drew on kids from New Trier High School, which is a very competitive high school with a lot of social stratification, you know, the way it goes on in high school. There were the popular kids and the geeky kids and the athletic kids and the party kids and the kids who were in the auto shop. But what was beautiful, beautiful about the Methodist Youth Fellowship at the Wilmette Methodist Church was that all of those class distinctions disappeared. Um, this particular youth minister, a man by the name of Bert Randall, knew how to draw everyone in who was willing to at least take a step in in this direction and knew how to create an environment where everybody felt they belonged. And I think, Phil, that, that that was really my first taste of what the beloved community might look like. And without wanting to make too, much, too big of a deal of it, when I got to Union Seminary years later and learned that an ancient church historian named Tertullian had said of the early church that their secret was outsiders looking in and and being able to say, see how they love one another, even though who was inside the church were strangers, as, as it were, and in those days being a stranger was dangerous. But the, 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 the proclamation of the church was through the lived life within the church, according to Tertullian see how they love one another. And that's what I saw in this youth group growing up. That's a wonderful place to begin a story of belonging. I'm thinking then, you know, jumping forward a few years, you had done, done academic work, you'd been a community organizer, and then you went to Pendle Hill, which is a Quaker community in Pennsylvania. And I think you had a different, a different dimension to feeling the sense of belonging there. And can you <laughs> tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, very much. I think it is important to note that after I finished my academic work, I went in 1969 to Washington, D.C. to become a community organizer around issues of racial justice. And after five years of that work, I kind of got a clue that I had never really lived in intense, intentionally and, and intensely and deeply in, in, quote, community. And so with my family, I went to this Quaker place called Pendle Hill near Philadelphia for what I thought was going to be a one-year sabbatical. Turned out to be 11 years of life uh, in this intentional Quaker community where about 80 people uh, had a daily round of life together, uh, eating meals together, worshiping together, Quaker style, uh, engaging in study together. Um, engaging in social outreach, the, the, the curriculum, the study program, which was offered as, in a way, as our cash crop uh, to both resident students, adult students, and students at large, um, was was all about 
spirituality and social change. It joined the inner and the outer life in nonviolent social change, which of course proceeds from within. So there's there was a lot. To, there's a lot to talk about, which we don't have time for today. Uh, about what I learned by living that intensely and intentionally with 80 people for 11 years. But the one piece I want to lift up is that Pendle Hill practiced absolute economic equality. Um, You know, Merton once said, the monastery is the only place where communism has ever really been tried. Um, And Pendle Hill was similar, I think. Um, everybody who worked there, I was Dean of Studies with a PhD from Berkeley. Another person would be an 18-year-old who came in after high school not knowing what else to do, to work in the kitchen or the garden or the shop. Everybody who worked there got the same base salary. The only increments to that were if you had kids. Uh, And the salaries were very modest and the increments more modest still. But I can't um, say enough about uh, what 11 years of living in radical economic equality did for me uh, to grind down some of the sense of entitlement that comes with being a person like me and to help me understand that people are to be valued not by the power they have, not by the wealth they have, not by the money they make, not by the status of their position, but by who they are, what they do, what they say, and really fundamentally whether they are good neighbors. Um, it, it, it sounds simple, and it is, and yet in our kind of society, I counted a breakthrough to really grok that, see it, understand it, feel it in its deepest form. Yeah, and those are, those are two wonderful examples of that sense of um, see, seeing each other as community, not seeing each other on a hierarchy. Let's jump, let's jump up to the current day. Where do you find your sense of belonging now in this era of COVID um, in a city? You're not part of an egalitarian community at this part point. So where do, where do you find belonging and how do you nurture that sense of belonging? Well, you know, like all of us, right at this very moment and for the last couple of years, my opportunity to be face-to-face with people uh, has been cut very, very short. Uh, For 50 years, I've traveled the country doing talks, lectures, workshops, retreats. As you said, founded an organization, the Center for Courage and Renewal, that spreads work like that throughout the world through 300 facilitators. Um, And I miss all of that very much. But It's just important to keep living and to keep living out uh, our fundamental values, one of which, as Chris so eloquently uh, named it, is this need to be with each other, to be in community as the communal creatures we are. And so the best that a lot of us are able to do right now is to be together like this online Um, So I do, I'm blessed to have done a work for 50 years that has had me, you know, writing messages, stuffing them into bottles and tossing them in the ocean. They're called books, and a certain community builds up that way. I'm also blessed to have had uh, long experience teaching, speaking, being interviewed, interviewing, and so forth. And so The community I find that really is in so many ways wonderfully sustaining for me, it ain't the old community, it's the new community, and I'm very glad for it. And of course, with the rest of us, I look forward to the day when more face-to-face is possible. Uh, I do miss it, but I don't spend a lot of time grieving its loss. I try to make the best use out of this medium that I possibly can. That's great. So, Becca, can you take us from an individual story to, like, church? Take us to church, Becca. Take us to church. I'll take you to church, yeah. Um, Yes, so um, Phil and I both have had experience working in churches, and um, so I think I want to redirect the questions to thinking about what our expectations of belonging ought to be, particularly in the church, and then maybe we can broaden to look outside of the church. Um, So when I started working at a church in Madison— Um, I started paying more attention to how the early church was started and um, 
just how it functioned. And it was very clear that it was not a group of people that naturally felt like they belonged together. Belonging did not readily come to them. They had different backgrounds, ethnically, socioeconomically, take your pick, different values, different ideas on how worship should be carried out, the whole shebang. And yet they were still named one body. They were named that they belonged to each other, but it was something that they needed to be called to, uh, something that they needed to strive for. And so I, I found I found that interesting, to say the least, that um, it didn't come naturally and that it wasn't just based on agreement. So then that brings me to my speculation or my question, um, which is, does belonging mean more than agreement or feeling comfortable? What should we expect belonging to look like in the church? What are some of its enduring qualities? Right. It, it has to mean more than that, doesn't it, Becca? And by the way, it's good to see you again. I got to know you a few weeks ago in this medium, and I'm delighted for this chance to talk with you as, as well as my old friend, Phil. Thank you. Um, it, it has to mean more than, than uh, we all agree with each other. In fact, uh, I would argue <clears throat> that there are, there are ways in which the church has perpetuated an illusion around that. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I used to get calls from clergy uh, and lay leaders of congregations asking me as a sociologist of religion to come into their church and help diversify what they always called a homogeneous white congregation. And from a very, uh, from the get-go, I would say, no, I, I won't do that, even though I'd written about diversity and its values. And people would be shocked. Why? And I would say, because there is no such thing as a homogeneous white congregation. There's only groups of white people pretending that they don't have any differences, keeping all their differences undercover for fear that if they touched on their differences, conflict would emerge and the whole thing would blow up. And my question, if, if I were a person uh, of color, if I were other, quote, in any way, from what I see on the surface of your congregation is, if y'all can't get along with each other, why in heaven's name would I want to join? I, who have a visible difference, when you who look like each other uh, are afraid of touching those points of difference. So I think one of the things we have to do is, you know, is unpack the illusion that, that churches as they stand um, are, in fact, creating space for people to get to the bottom of things that might divide them. And I'm not just talking about political opinions or ideological orientations. I'm talking about things that happen in people's lives. I'm talking about relationships breaking up. I'm talking about vocational despair and failure. Um, I'm talking about living with the consequences of bad decisions, et cetera, et cetera. Things that that, that, that people keep under cover in church. You know, it's classically said there's lots of folks who'd rather talk about such things to a bartender or to a stranger on a train than talk about them within their congregation, which they see as a gossip mill. Um, so I, I think the reasonable meaning of belonging uh, as I've thought about this, as I've experienced it, is around a series of questions that I think most of us ask when we get involved with a group or a relationship of any sort. Questions like, am I seen? Am I heard? Am I taken seriously? Does my voice matter? When I express myself in, in pain or fear or hope, do I get a response? Um, th those are simple questions, but I think they're the fundamental human questions. And I think when the answer can be yes, by and large, I, I am seen, I am heard. When I express myself, I get a response, not demanding that the response is, you know, uh, exactly what I, what I want, but an effort to connect with me around those critical points in life. 
When the answer is yes, I think we have something at least approaching communities, see how they love one another. They're paying attention to one another. When the answer is no, people fall away into that loneliness that Chris was talking about. Or, and I think this is an untapped topic in our society, they strike out in violence because they they need to know they they need to let people know i'm here i have a voice i am making a claim i i watched as many of us did the events of january 6th which were so heavily driven by white supremacy by anti-democracy tropes and ideologies and part of what i saw was a lot of people who have reverted to violence to say, I'm here. And so the question arises for me, how might this country be different if, if in, in those voluntary associations that dot this country, the ones Alexis de Tocqueville said were so critical to the future of democracy in his book, Democracy in America, what if in those voluntary associations, including the church, we intentionally focused in strategic ways on trying to make sure that people feel seen and heard and responded to, taken seriously? You know, most, most people don't want, most people realize as they grow up, they can't have it their way all the time. Um, that's that's you know a kind of um, uh, arrested development human attitude that that I I must always have it my way. Our, our hope and and our 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 delight is when we're taken seriously and we can become part of the mix. We win some and we lose some, but at least we're feeling alive and connected in that communal way. Yes. So those are very helpful questions to consider. Am I seen? Am I heard? Am I being taken seriously? Are people responding to me? Um, so let's try and broaden that out. You were going there um, towards the end of just the our sense of belonging as a nation. Could you tell us how you are understanding this crisis of belonging in our nation today? Um, would you add any more to the sense that people feel like they are not being heard? Well, let's let's start with the proposition that a nation uh, can't be understood as a community in the terms that we're now talking about. Again, that's the task to be carried by this whole layer of life that I call pre-political, the, the layer that Alexis de Tocqueville talked about, the layer of voluntary associations, including the church. I've, I've always thought, Becca, that it's very dangerous for the church to promote itself as the church family. Because the family is a very intimate, closed system. The, what's the, this pre-political layer, this public layer of life, is, is where the church can join both the private and the political, not by getting political, but, but by doing the pre-political work of weaving relationships among among the company of strangers, as I as I called it in one of my books, I guess Simon and Garfunkel always also used that <laughs> phrase with some success. Um, so it's it's about weaving and reweaving the local venues of life, where I continue to feel against, uh, despite the odds, that the church has the congregations of every sort and of every faith tradition have really important opportunities in helping us through the fragmentation of our body politic and the, the growing violence of our political life, which has waxed and waned over the years. It ain't the first time, and we're not the first people who have suffered from this, but it is waxing again the violence of politics as as everybody feels marginalized and alienated. I don't know a single person, right or left or center, who isn't saying, 
I just feel left out of this whole deal. There are people actively hating on me for my beliefs and my views. And there is no national solution to that. Martin Buber said, a nation is a community of communities, and only by working on the sub-communities can, can we get uh, any, any traction on, on, this, on, this, on this thing at all. Parker, when we've talked in the past, you've, you've t- referenced Wendell Berry, the, the writer, the poet, um, and his distinction between being a member and a citizen. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, Wendell Berry is just one of my very favorite writers, poetry, prose, novels, the whole kielbasa. And um, he, his, his brilliant, brilliant novels over the years have uh, portrayed a community on the Kentucky River called Port William, which is not unlike the area where, uh, where Wendell Berry and his wife farm and have farmed for a long time. And whenever he writes about Port William, he he uses the phrase in 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 referring to the collective. He uses the phrase the Port William membership, um, and I've I've always loved that phrase. Uh, we are members of one another, and I think Barry gets this pretty directly from his own relationship to the Christian tradition which of course permeates the area where he's lived and farmed all his life. Um, it's a, such a different um, notion, isn't it, than the civic community or citizenship. It would be wonderful if, all, if, they all, if those were synonyms for one another, but as, as we use them, they're not. I mean, when, when politicians think about citizens, they send their... Uh, pollsters out to find how to divide and conquer um, or how to maximize the vote from their base. But if we think about the simple truth that we are members of one another, um, something new starts to emerge. That's church language, but I think it, it, it's, it, so it's fascinating to find uh, places like Wendell Berry's novels where it's used as civic language as well. I think the a point that I'd like to to make in this in this context, Phil, is that being members of one another doesn't mean that everything is peachy keen. I think most people who who have been or are in a marriage or in a, a partner relationship of any degree of seriousness fully understand that being joined to another life doesn't mean the absence of conflict. Um, And in fact, most of us who've, you know, been working on our relational lives for more than five minutes have, have realized that conflict can actually be the doorway into deeper relationship. Um, you know, conflict is where we start to get traction on who we really are. And we, and we start to get traction on things like, I guess I had an unconscious agenda to change who this other person really is. And that was dumb from the get-go. And if that's, if that's what I'm looking for here, someone malleable uh, to, to remake in my own image, then I've made a bad choice. And, and something has to give. So conflict, for those of us who have experienced it, as everyone has, I think, in intimate relationships, is a doorway into community. And that's true in larger forms of community as well. It, it really saddens me to see churches come upon conflict, moments of conflict, and kind of, and the air kind of goes out of everything. Uh, as if we we are failing the Christian dream. Well, read the scriptures again. Read about all the moments of conflict in the Hebrew Bible and in the Christian texts, and understand how God works in conflict to help us become more honest, to help us become clearer, to help us get a grip and get real and get our feet on the ground 
where we can continue walking through this, you know, very fractured landscape uh, of our lives. I've, I've always felt, and it's, I don't know, I've never found out quite how to articulate this, but that long before Christianity is an ethic, it's a statement about what's real. And what's real is different from what we dream, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Dorothy Day, who was one of the most grounded Christians who ever lived with her ministry to the uh, very, very poor on the Lower East Side of New York and across this country, loved to quote Dostoevsky, who said, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Parker, as you you know, a number of the folks who are with us this morning are pastors of congregations and then mm-hmm. also a lot of lay leaders, and so they all deal with these issues of conflict within congregations and how then to create a sense of belonging in a fractured place. I, you know, I had a little bit of experience with this. A decade ago, Wisconsin was torn apart by um, disputes over the role of um, unions and public employees and there were lots of demonstrations in Madison and in the congregation I was serving. It's a fairly liberal congregation, and I thought I could be very wise and help them understand some of the views of the Christian social gospel. So we got a group together, and before I could even impart my words of wisdom, the discussion began, and one of them was a teacher who felt very put upon by what was happening. Another was from business and talked about his experience growing up where the unions— harassed his family, and another was a state employee, and everybody in that group wound up listening to each other. Fortunately, they didn't have to listen to me because I just stayed out of the way mostly. In your book, Healing the Heart of Democracy, you talk, you have some suggestions about how congregations can approach some of these issues that divide them and how they can come back together. And it's things like breaking bread together and finding ways to to reach a consensus. Can you maybe talk a little bit about some of those things, some of those structural things congregations might be able to do that would help get into these divides? Well, let me just say first, Phil, that I've known you for a long time, and and I know about your work in journalism and the ministry. And um, in the ministry, you've done a lot of great things by, quote, staying out of the way. (laughs) (laughs) I, I kind of have to believe that you set the table for for the opportunities to stay out of the way. So that's that's probably a key a key thingy <laughs> technical theological term thingy. I don't lose lose anybody at that point. Um, so uh, what what interests me is that I think a lot of this is fairly simple, uh, but it's. I call them secrets hidden in plain sight. And I also think, as, as and I'm looping back now to my days as a community organizer in Washington, D.C., where I began to realize that what I was doing as a community organizer was not getting people to do what I, I thought they ought to do. Instead, I, at my best, I was providing them with excuses and permissions to do things they wanted to do but were too awkward or shy, fearful to do for themselves. For example, in this changing neighborhood where I was working for a while, with a lot of newcomers arriving, the, the, the most direct and helpful thing we could do is, would be to get members of the congregations in that community, and we were working with about 35 congregations of, of many sorts, to get members of those congregations to go up to the door of, uh, of a recently arrived neighbor, introduce themselves, and ask how it's going, and invite some stories about who, who these people are and what they bring to the new neighborhood, rather than fearing them because they look different or talk different or believe different than we do, uh, whoever we may be. It, in our society, even back then, that puts people in an awkward position. So what I did was I dummied up a questionnaire, gave everybody, gave hundreds of people in these congregations clipboards and questionnaires and uh, pencils 
And we organized one, a series of Saturdays when they went out into the community and, quote, did research, which basically consisted of walking up to the door with your clipboard in hand and saying, hi, I'm from the Silver Spring Group Ministry. How you doing? <laughs> you know, and, and tell me your story. So this clipboard and this questionnaire and this group identity enabled folks to meet their neighbors. And then we brought them back to one of the bigger churches where several hundred people could gather. And we had meals where they could share stories with each other, which eventually emerged, uh, it resulted in the creation of a community foundation and the creation of a lot of activities that helped weave that rapidly changing community together so that it wouldn't go the way of redlining, blockbusting, and all the other destructive things that keep replicating our problems in this country. Um, one of my great moments in community organizing, again to the point of what can congregations do, was when early on in my work in D.C., I went downtown to speak with a black clergyman uh, who was very well known for extraordinary work in his own challenging neighborhood. And I kind of, as a young guy, walked into his office and said, so what's your secret? And he looked at me and smiled beatifically and said, potluck suppers. <laughs> Well, you know, with a PhD in the sociology of religion from Berkeley, that didn't seem like a good answer to me. But he patiently explained that breaking bread together has all kinds of meanings and possibilities. And in, I particularly remember one program that he did systematically through the year of bringing neighborhood kids, street kids, together with the police who served in that area and setting up over-the-table situations where they got to know each other's stories with measurable impact on what went on in the streets so that the next time something happened that required police presence, those officers might in fact know a couple of those kids. And your reference to Act 10 makes me wonder, Phil, about situations in which a church can do so much more than just preach from the pulpit about this decision or that, not to say that's not important. But lots and lots of teachers, for example, and school administrators and people for and against unions belong to churches. What about dedicated groups for those folks to talk things through in a congregational setting? where the temperature, I'm not going to say it's, it's, it's lower, but it's, it's more habitable because we do share some fundamental underlying belief. I mean, Chris, in his opening remarks, outlined significantly and importantly and well how balkanized our religious communities have become around sort of fixed ideologies. But there's still a lot of opportunities, I think, for congregations, again, of many sorts, to be the wild card in this mix and create those small opportunities that can make a big difference. And I'll, I'll just say one more thing. Uh, I know we need to move on. There, there, there are beliefs that we have to recover or rethink. Um, and then recover, such as conflict isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, tension isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's part of reality, and we should come to terms with it and use it for good. It's an engine. It's an energy. We, we have to recover a belief in the importance of small things. And we, we live in a society where the media present things on such massive scale, or I might say our use of the media, our consumption of the media, ends up 
with with us having this picture of massive problems and very few possibilities. And what in God's name am I to do about all that? The easy answer is nothing. So I just hunker down and tuck away and disengage from my own my own responsibilities as a citizen, as a human being, as a member, as part of the membership. Becca, you've got a good follow-up to what Parker was just saying. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, I, so going back to congregations um, and those being pockets of places where we can start to redefine some of these concepts or understand how to move forward with these concepts, I'm wondering if you can speak to how to delineate for congregations, how to delineate between non-negotiables, things that like we cannot bend on this, and allowable points of contention, um, and how you can lead your congregation through some of those points. You know, so for example, masks in church. Should we wear masks in church? Should we even be gathering in church during uh, during COVID? And um, people can be going off of very biblical ideas. One, we should not cower to fear. We have not been given a spirit of fear. Or um, we should love people well and. People are interpreting loving others well in many different ways. So where, not where, how are leaders to distinguish between these two, non-negotiable and that's just a point of contention? Well, I I have to say, Becca, and I don't mean to be discouraging about this, but but it's a lesson that I think we need to learn. Um, In some situations now, the train wreck has already happened. And it's really hard to get the train on track, back on track. I, I think the the ongoing job for congregations, and you know, life starts anew each day in some significant ways, is to get ahead of the train wreck by acclimating people uh, to those non-negotiables, or by use of those non-negotiables, acclimating people in in situations that have smaller stakes than the one that we're currently in. Sadly, sadly, and I, I never imagined this would happen, um, a public health problem has become politicized and it breaks out along, almost along party lines, certainly along ideological lines. To me, that's, you know, we're, we're deep in a kind of madness when a virus that doesn't care what your politics are, is simply and plainly killing people all over the place, right and left. And the question, do we have a responsibility to each other in that, should be, in my opinion, a no-brainer. Of course we do. Of course we do. I have a responsibility to my family. I have a responsibility to my neighbors. I have a responsibility to the people who work in stores and in healthcare institutions, et cetera, et cetera. I even have a responsibility to myself to do everything I can not to burden our healthcare system further. I'm 82, soon to be 83. I might well have something come along that requires hospitalization that's not related to COVID. You know, I should try to stay in that territory rather than add another problem. So in in congregational life, we have to have processes of that accustom people to listening to each other, to connecting with each other, to taking each other seriously before the train wreck. And because once the train wreck has happened, it's really hard to get the train back on track. So let's get to know each other. Let's do more autobiographical storytelling in congregations. Let's establish processes. In in my work, we gather in what we call circles of trust, and we have a very simple ground rule. We will listen to each other without attempting to fix, save, advise, or correct each other. That's that's a way to help people be heard. Suspend the normal ground rules. Don't listen to another person for a few minutes and then try to fix or save or advise or correct them. That leaves people feeling unheard. Listen to them and then give them the gift of asking honest, open questions. 
about what they've just expressed to help, quote, hear them into deeper speech, a phrase that I stole from a feminist theologian named Nell Morton. So when I think of non-negotiables, I don't think of creedal non-negotiables. That's starting at too high a level, and I think it's a dead end. I think of procedural non-negotiables. In this gathering of our congregation, we will, for this period of time, follow these ground rules about how we talk to each other, and that's non-negotiable. If you want to be part of this, then you sign off on the ground rules uh, as process. It, It doesn't last forever. That's not the only good way to be together. But when we're doing it, we learn stuff about each other. We become more deeply joined. We don't leave people feeling unheard and uh, arrogantly advised or put down, as is often the case. We have to keep weaving that communal fabric, storytelling, procedural ground rules, working together, doing tasks together. Oh, I'm, I'm, I understand that studies of church growth show that the deepest sense of community comes in the early years when a congregation has tasks to do. Let's, let's paint the basement and turn it into a rec room, you know. Let's polish the pews. Let's plant stuff outside to make the grounds more attractive. And often, the less money a congregation has, the more the sense of community, because that's when people have to call on one another to get those jobs done. I I don't think any of it is rocket science, but I think what's important is to keep it on the ground, keep it human scale, and let people see how we love one another. Thank you very much, Parker, for spending your time with us. That was the end of the formal interview part of the event with Parker. And he went on to answer some questions from the virtual audience in attendance, mostly uh, from church pastors. Just a reminder here, as we close our episode, that the hosting grant for this interview, Awaken Dane, is recruiting more pastors and church leaders into its cohorts. And are you a church leader or do you go to a church that you think would benefit from these types of conversations among its leadership. Awaken Dane would be eager to hear from you, and there's contact info in the show notes. So with that, thanks for listening, and go in peace. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear. Audio engineering by Andy Johnson and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.